Escape from Plan A. Hey, welcome to your Escape from Plan A for this week. Uh, I'm Teen. I'm joined by uh, Diana. And we got a special guest. We got uh, Danny Haifong. Danny Haifong is the... uh, co-author of the book American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, which is I'm looking at it on Amazon. And I was just telling Danny, Danny, you guys have an incredible roster of people who gave you little praise blurbs. It includes Cornell West, Chris Hedges, uh, the Cynthia McKinney, who was a uh, uh, house rep. Uh, Michael Parenti, who is the leftist uh, darling of Twitter. Uh, the list goes on. So that was that was great, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it was uh, it was definitely difficult to get all of those blurbs together, but we're glad we did just because a lot of those folks are people we admire very much. So we were honored to get them. Yeah. So the book is American Exceptionalism and Amer- and American Incidents. And Danny, you're also a regular contributor to the Black Agenda Report. I think you've got a lot of uh, got a lot of stuff up on there, right? Yeah, I've been writing weekly for them since around 2013, I think, uh, mid-2013. So, yeah, it's been a lot of material. Uh, I, you know, I've been trying to just continue to work with them. They're they're great, and everyone should check them out. Uh, they really provide an analysis that I think our movement tends to lack. So um, I'm very grateful for them and all that they've been able to teach me. And so, yeah, I've been writing for them weekly. I noticed, I mean, I was just looking through some of the titles of uh, some of the headlines that you, of, of articles that you publish on there. And you seem to focus a lot, I think, on countries that America would consider part of the axis of evil, right? Like the, 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 the rogue nation, so to speak, Venezuela, Cuba, Iran, China, Russia. And I think it sounds like, you know, from what I gather that you're and, and also I noticed you going on um, the last time I really saw you online was when you went on Jimmy Dore show to talk about China, that you're really trying to subvert a lot of the uh, I would call it the, the state propaganda around how certain countries uh, are evil societies that we need to kind of treat as enemy and that. It's really hard, I think, for for Americans to sort of see past a lot of that stuff. Like once it's taken, once the narrative has taken hold that Venezuela is an evil country, it seems really difficult for people to push back on that. And I think the same applies to China. So when I saw you um, subverting what we, what most people in America think about China on the Jimmy Dore show, I was like, I got to talk to this guy because I kind of want to know um, how exactly you came about uh to to seeing these things um is that a fair characterization of kind of like where a lot of your focus is on like you anti-imperialism and sort of a critique of u.s foreign policy Uh, it's perfectly fair i mean i feel that it is almost a duty for those of us who even just call ourselves social justice activists or uh, people on the left to prioritize 
U.S. foreign policy and uh, to uh, really investigate what anti-imperialism really means in this very dangerous moment where the United States is not just the biggest military power and hegemonic uh, militarist uh, regime in the world, but also it, it has been the only country to ever use uh, nuclear weapons. It is uh, a country that continues to threaten nuclear war um, and to uh, build the capacity to threaten nuclear war over the course of of uh, just even the last decade or so. So uh, we really do have a commitment to, I think, reject a lot of what our institutions from the corporate media to the Pentagon to uh, whoever is in Washington at every, any given moment as president uh, to really debunk what they are saying about countries around the world because usually what they're doing is just building a pretext for war that there is no interest in human rights, quote unquote, or in quote unquote democracy, right? There is no international standard for any of those things anyway. Um, so we really have to be precise. And so that's what I try to do in my work is to get our movement to be more precise, to think more analytically, more critically, and to ultimately connect these struggles because I also, you know, over the course of the years have tried to write very extensively on what racism in America is like, on what economic exploitation, what the economic system of capitalism has been like, I mean, is like for so many millions of people. Um, but if we're fighting those struggles in isolation and in, in learning about these things in isolation, uh, then we become susceptible to uh, whatever the U.S., uh, political class and economic elite have to say about, uh, you know, the vast majority of the planet. You know, the U.S. is still, even though it's one of the most populous countries on the planet, it is still a minority of the global population and um, oftentimes attempts to speak for uh, everyone um, and, to, and to claim that it has the right to determine the destinies of everyone else on the planet besides um you know, its own jurisdiction, which itself is a colonial <laughs> jurisdiction. Yeah. I mean, I think I agree with everything that you said. What I've noticed, though, is that more and more people would listen to what you're saying and nod their head. Like, we we can understand and accept that on its face. At least more and more people seem to be. But I think we can accept it on a sliding scale. Like, let's say I think a lot of people are starting to understand that, you know, we may have really perverted views of Cuba. Like, you know, like the, the, the way that we have been taught to think of Cuba has been subject to change. And I think um, we think of renormalizing relationships with Cuba as something good and progressive, like, like blandly progressive, something that Obama did. And, you know, Trump being the bad president came in and kind of rolled that back. But I think Cuba is starting to become seen as a quote, good country. And I think um, and, and, and the normalization of that, I think, is seen as the sort of relaxation of U.S. empire, let's say. But then now we get to Venezuela and things are a little bit not so clear. But I think maybe, maybe a little maybe, you know, maybe there's a little bit of give there. Iran, I think I don't know if people are really going to come around to Iran anytime soon. <laughs> Russia, hard to say, I think, you know, whatever. But I think the real difficult one right now is China. I think it's going to be really hard, in my opinion, to get people to see that China 
uh, isn't actually worse in many ways than America. I think that's the narrative that's being bandied about. And I want to point out, there's a tweet that I noticed a while ago by Viet Thanh Nguyen, the, the uh, Pulitzer winning author. Mm. Um, and he said that, and I think, and I point this out not because it's a particularly bad tweet, they'll come around to that and its relationship to us Asian Americans, but he, I think he summed up something that I think is quite, uh, it's taken hold, I think, across a lot of America, particularly like progressives and liberals, the decline of the UK and the USA, both imperial powers that seem to be intent on committing suicide, would be acceptable if the alternative wasn't China, which is just as bad, if not worse. The UK and the USA at least have a discourse of democracy and human rights that can be used to make them accountable for their many hypocrisies. China has nothing to restrain it in either of its communist or imperialist traditions. Mm. Uh, Like before, I mean, there's obviously, I think, a a lot wrong with this tweet, but I think that, uh, you know, it is, I think it does sort of show functionally what the role of China is in, in in sort of political thought these days, which is, yes, the U.S. is definitely showing its hand in a lot of places. We're, we're starting, we're, it's starting to be revealed that we're not really a, the greatest actor, uh, that we do a lot of bad shit and we wage a lot of, you know, unjust and, and pointless wars and et cetera, et cetera. However, if we weren't doing that, China would be doing it instead. And because we at least have the Bill of Rights and China has no such thing, we better just stick with the US. I think that is sort of what's kind of going on and why China is so important in in terms of like why we're talking about China so much. Um, and so when I saw you, when I saw you sort of trying to subvert that notion of China it kind of struck me as, you know, I think that's a very important but very difficult thing to do. And I'm just wondering if you found it difficult to approach that particular aspect of, uh, uh, you know, of, of American policy. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, there are difficult aspects to it. I guess, in my opinion, I do see the rise in anti-China sentiment in the United States as directly proportional to the decline of the United States as an economic uh, power in the world. And, uh, you know, as you rightly stated, uh, China is such a convenient scapegoat for all of the ills that face uh, so many people here in the United States. Uh, You know, China's always blamed for the economic ills of workers, right? Trump made that a huge Um, aspect of his campaign, but he's not the only one. I mean, this dates back decades uh, when U.S. corporations, financiers and their political uh, puppeteers were or puppets were negotiating um, jobs away and selling jobs away from the United States and shipping them everywhere, not just China. But China is a very convenient scapegoat in that way. I, I think that you know, all of it is connected to uh, what we're facing now uh, and, and sort of what we face here in the United States. Uh, Anti-China sentiment towards directed towards China has the same roots as um, the ways in which, you know, we're seeing right now. Black people are scapegoated for their own uh, mass murder at the hands of the police or for the poverty that they experience or for the mass incarceration that has 
been inflicted upon them over the course of the last several decades. The same goes for undocumented people. And now we're seeing the increased uh, hostilities toward uh, Asian Americans inside of the United States uh, and the Western world, too, in places like Australia, where anti-China sentiment um, can really just be directed at any social group that um, needs to be scapegoated at a given moment to, to justify and to reinforce uh, American exceptionalism. That's why we wrote our book is because a lot of this goes back with the need to the need for the ruling class to maintain its image as an exceptional, uh, you know, that its system is the most exceptional system that it cannot be challenged. And even when it is at the point of collapse, that the alternative is supposed to uh, make us even more unsettled, that we're supposed to be more troubled by that alternative. And so it is very difficult to talk to most people um, in the United States from uh, the farthest to the left, even to, to you know, into the right. Uh, you have almost a consensus on this question that uh, even if U.S. imperialism is bad and racism is bad and U.S. capitalism is the hegemon and it's bad, uh, China is really seen as this like uh, strong man, authoritarian, totalitarian, communist state that represents the antithesis of what I think many people unfortunately still believe is a possibility, which is a more perfect democratic order in the United States. I think that there's still a long way to go before even the most progressive of people in the United States um, and they, they do exist, but um, they're in a minority. But in the, for the most part, most of the people who call themselves progressives still believe that um, somehow this uh, capitalist uh, so-called democratic order is not only the only game in town, but also a preferred game as long as it is more fair and equitable. Uh, we've had so much historical documentation to show that you know, perhaps we need to start thinking about alternatives. Uh, but it's hard to think about alternatives if the U.S. itself and its ruling class and every single aspect of the United States is organized to continue to tell us that no, no alternative that anyone else tries to organize. Even in the United States, there have been examples of people trying to organize alternatives to capitalism. But all of that has to be uh, demonized and repressed and shown to be evil and uh, shown to have nefarious motives, but uh, the real and the only act in town is to try to ameliorate and to fix what, in effect, is a system that is working exactly as it's designed, but uh, we're told over and over and over again, it's broken, it's broken. That's how Donald Trump really won the election. I mean, he didn't run on a campaign that was necessarily traditionally about American, American exceptionalism. It was about reviving what American exceptionalism, American exceptionalism has always been, which is a white exceptionalism an exceptionalism that cap that cashes in for a certain section of the population at the expense of much of the world. And the U S has been since Trump has been elected, but even before that on a mission to continue to stake its claim towards, uh, just, total domination. And I would argue that that's a, a very damaging thing to align oneself to. But uh, it, it's an ongoing conversation that we need to have amongst, uh, you know, our 
forces as we organize, as we, you know, as you see tens of thousands of people in the streets and cities across this country. And it's a, it's a big opportunity to have these kind of conversations. Yeah, on that point, you said across this country, I've also noticed like I started seeing pictures of like mass demonstrations in other countries, including uh, in Europe and in Germany and uh, in, in, in other parts of the world that we would be considered allies of the US, white allies, uh, New Zealand, Australia, things like that. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I want to read that as uh, the the questioning of whether America as sort of the centerpiece of the, quote, Western world is something that is being challenged now. I mean, let, let's let's leave the Western the idea of the Western world alone or liberal democracy alone, but the America itself, like I'm wondering if there is a connection here between what's happening. Well, I, I, I would say there definitely is a connection between what's happening right now on the streets in America and the 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 lifting of the veil of the image of American exceptionalism around the world, whether this is actually uh, calling into question America's exceptionalism uh, outside of our borders and whether that may be like a big crisis that those in power uh, have identified, that these kinds of events are, are really um, corrosive to like just American hegemony. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I believe that's true. I, I think that the the international solidarity being shown to the movement here against racist policing is indeed rooted in what I think is a collapse in U.S. leadership around the world. I, I think that uh, the inevitable, and, and I think this was always inevitable, regardless if Trump kind of helped. Uh, push it forward, there has been an inevitable return of competition between the U.S. and Europe. It's not so much an alliance as it once was. We do see the Trump administration has been more uh, bellicose towards Europe, at least in attempting to completely marginalize it to its own uh, international and and economic uh, interests. It has been trying to keep Europe away from China. Again, the China question comes back into play. So I think that there is a lot of disdain right now towards the United States around the world. Um, I think that that disdain is always there, even within countries where, um, you know, the U.S. is allied with, because that alliance does not necessarily bring too many benefits to the vast majority of people. Usually it's coupled with austerity uh, the globalization of austerity. And, uh, you know, I think the murder of George Floyd, now that we have such an interconnected world, it's really hard for people who have any sort of conscience or um, any sort of uh, sense of justice to just sit back and then watch, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people in the United States uh, demand uh, you know, police be held accountable to demand that they uh, be defunded because they make up so much of the budget. It's hard to ignore that. Um, and I think uh, that ex- partly explains why there's so many people in the streets across the European world. And then there's also this other side, which is not necessarily so progressive, but it's a reality that we have to face, which is that an election is coming up and that there are a lot of people in Europe as well as in the United States, on uh, especially those who consider themselves "quote unquote" liberals, 
they want Trump out by any means necessary. Like they, they've wanted him out. They wanted to impeach him. They want to do all, you know, they've had so many different, um, you know, motives for this, but at the end of the day, that's what they want. And, um, you know, the, the George Floyd protests definitely helped that along. And so I think there are probably some forces inside of Europe that also, uh, are using this as a way to forward, you know, the preferred, uh, political party or the preferred at least section of the elite, regardless of political party, um, you know, into office this coming November, you know, Trump isn't looking too great at the moment. So, yeah, I think that there's a lot to it, but, um, American exceptionalism, one of the reasons we wrote about in the book is because we know that it is eroding, that there is a sense that this ideology is bankrupt because it does not match up to reality for so many people. And globally, that re- that lack of congruence uh, with reality is even more magnified. So uh, in effect, yeah, I-, I believe all of these moments that we're seeing in the pandemic, we can't also... Uh, neglect the fact that the U.S. uh, perhaps had the worst response to the pandemic um, and its close partner, the U.K., right behind them, uh, which has precipitated, I think, a lot of the anger and the energy that we see behind uh, the protests um, right now. See, the the thing that I'm I'm a little worried about is like when things get really bad, like they are now, like just overlapping crisis and stuff is the America's America will just be like, fuck it. Let's just have a war. That's, mm. that's what I'm really kind of worried about is when all goes to shit and when we're suffering from an economic depression and all this stuff and, and everything seems to be falling apart. I wonder if, you know, in history, it seems like the worst crises precipitate a war. Uh-huh. And that's what I'm worried about. You, do, you, do you think that's possible? Is that something that your research and your thoughts about this have led you to worry about too or no? <laughs> Well, it's definitely a worry, and I feel like it's a worry all the time, regardless of whether there are these overlapping crises, which only then magnifies the risk. So, no, it's it's definitely a worry. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I went to China for two weeks in December on a delegation. It's one of the reasons why I talk so much about China right now. It's not because so much I think that an outright military confrontation with China is an immediate possibility, like it'll happen tomorrow. But for sure, we would be naive to believe that if uh, there are 60% of all of the U.S.'s military assets surrounding China along its borders and in, in the south, places like the South China Sea and across the Asia Pacific, if we ignore that, uh, we do so at our own peril because we know that the United States is driven by war we know that uh, how the united states got itself out of the great depression was through its very uh, clever uh, negotiation in its participation in the second world war that it did not act as some sort of uh, democratic benevolent actor that really it was making calculated decisions on how to participate in it so it would come out as the global economic superpower uh, and that uh, actually the fight against fascism was uh, secondary to U.S. leadership. So uh, and we also know that the George W. Bush administration, you know, waged two wars uh, after 9-11, not only because 9-11 happened, but because there was a plan already in the works to invade 
seven countries in that region. And the George W. Bush administration won in 2000 on very faulty premises, on the premise of election rigging. And it needed a way to develop legitimacy. And so it was the perfect storm and a perfect moment, right? So it's no wonder that the Trump administration became more and more and more bellicose and more hostile towards China as its pandemic response was being criticized uh, and was really ravaging not only the actual human lives of people in the United States, but also economically, and it engineered a capitalist crisis, perhaps to the scale of the Great Depression. So with that said, we do have the material conditions for a possible military confrontation. Now, of course, you know, the world is a dialectical place. So there's another side to this. Uh, China is itself a very strong country, an independent country, and one that um, cannot be dismissed when talking about a potential invasion. I think that the U.S. military has actually conducted simulations. The RAND Corporation has done studies on this, and the outcome of a war with China has been concluded to be a disastrous one. So there are a lot of factors to this, and that's why I don't think it'll be immediate. But if we don't understand the danger of this, especially since China is not the only country that is under uh, the threat of war from the United States, or actually currently experiencing war from the United States, whether we're talking about Syria, uh, Somalia, uh, Yemen, uh, in the Saudi-backed invasion. So in the U.S.-backed Saudi invasion. So there are so many flashpoints for war already um, that it would be almost uh, preposterous to think that um, the conditions for war don't exist with two of the biggest military powers, not just China, but also Russia, And that we shouldn't be concerned about this, given that uh, as we couldn't predict a pandemic and we couldn't predict in uh, a Great Depression-like crisis at this moment of history, we also can't predict what crises will come after that. We can't predict how fast they will come. I think we can kind of predict that economic crises are inherent to capitalism. But of course, the U.S. is its own beast and it produces its own set of crises that are very particular to its context and how it operates uh, this kind of uh, mode of production and and mode of domination. So we can't predict how the U.S. ruling class will react to those crises. And and thus, we have to be very, uh, very keen on developing some foresight on how to understand this and act on it. Um, before that happens, right? We don't want to be in a situation where, you know, the the cards are stacked in the correct way for the U.S. to wage such a a bloody and disastrous war for humanity, right? We don't want to be in that position. And that's why I talk about the things that I do. You know, what worries me is that a lot of the global protests and, you know, even some of the ones here, they're very Trump focused, Mm -hmm. You know, they're kind of saying, like, we need to oust this guy because it's all this guy's fault. And when this guy leaves office, everything will be fine again. Like, that's all that's the tone that I think. I mean, I think like a lot of the SJW, like liberal progressives are trying to push. And that is kind of the um, the tone that I'm seeing in these like uh, European protests, too, or at least what little. I've seen from them 
So I'm not sure what like the European agenda is, but if I guess for me, I feel like if it's, you know, like a liberal success and, you know, Trump loses the election because of the Black Lives Matter protests, I feel like it's just going to be another wave of just like, you know, like liberal co-opting of BLM and they, you know, like they, they're not good at actually doing anything in terms of like winning or like uh, instigating. But I think they do have a much more subtle campaign of um, international hegemony. And so I feel like what might happen is, you know, like these protests are going to be successful in that, you know, we get some sort of like wishy-washy, like mealy-mouthed, you know, accountability initiative for uh, police, you know, across the nation. Um, The liberals win the election. And then we have Joe Biden being like this weekend at Bernie's like half dead president and just like the liberal machine continuing in a more like a like a like a toned down version of um, the anti anti China, um, you know, like direction that we've been heading in. And like eventually there will be a war like not tomorrow but it will actually be a more calculated and devastating war. Yeah, it's a big danger, in my opinion. And I'm writing an article about it right now, uh, that uh, we really do need to see our enemies um, clearly. And what's difficult about, I think, spontaneous rebellions and and movements is that uh, we tend not to find out who the organizers and actors are until uh, that develop until a lot of developments sort of occur um, quickly, right? So until the reforms that are presented, the lukewarm reforms, until the Democratic Party and the so-called liberal class try to get out in front of it, until that happens, we don't really know who is leading these movements. We they're not so transparent they're not so uh, they kind of operate in stealth and i think it's uh, an issue because i think we do need a strong above ground movement that clearly that has clear leadership it doesn't have to be individual leadership but we do need to know collectively you know who are the organizations that are uh, really in the lead of this what are their politics what are their demands what is their character how are they organizing people and for what purpose and right now that's not really part of this uprising. Um, And so the danger with that is um, no matter how um, uplifting and positive it is that we have this uprising on the streets, the danger always is, is that yes, the democratic party, the liberal class, uh, even corporations, we see multinational corporations getting in on the mix we see this flanking and it, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that the movement will not stop. The protests won't stop um, if there isn't a response. So we do see a response on the part of large sections of the ruling class that are trying to reorient um, the entire movement towards acceptable means of protest and acceptable means of political discourse. And so 
uh, yeah, the big issue, I think, is that now we have a situation where, you know, Donald Trump, if circumstances prior to, uh, you know, early March had remained, uh, you know, how they were at that time, if, if, you know, if the pandemic hadn't hit here, if there wasn't this huge economic crisis and there wasn't this huge uprising, right? And I think all of them are very connected. If that didn't happen, then Trump probably would have had a pretty easy time with Joe Biden. But now we're seeing that there is a lot of momentum. And I think the Democrats are calculating that this is the time to push Biden through. And he could very well win in November. It's probably much more likely than it ever was. And so... Um, the problem with having Democrats in office is that we usually are stuck with a more effective kind of evil that, you know, Donald Trump and we do see even a lot of progressive pundits now say, hey, well, you know, Donald Trump is just that bad. Now they're realizing he's just that bad and they need to now look at Biden, you know, people who claim themselves to be Bernie surrogates and even independent of Bernie Sanders are saying this and yeah, I, I think the problem with that kind of political reaction and the way that uh, liberals and so-called social democrats and uh, people who call themselves left but are really um, just interested in a more effective um, kind of stewardship of this system, I think the problem is, is that we end up getting more of the same. The general trajectory of society ends up going down the same kind of lines, whether we're talking about uh, bellicosity and saber rattling with China, with Russia, whether they're talking about expanding the military industrial complex, whether they're talking about um, ensuring that uh, finance capital is allowed to fleece working people. Um, you know, all of those things remain the same and end up getting worse, right? So even if conditions, um, you know, even if conditions are very bad now and we can't necessarily deny how putrid the Trump administration is, um, it's harder to uh, really make the claim that, uh, you know, we're really going down sort of a, a very um how should i say just a a very similar kind of uh journey with someone like biden and with the democrats when uh you know trump is in office and there is all this political energy towards getting him out that's usually part of this process as you were saying uh, in, in diana uh, in co-opting right co-opting the movement it's a big problem and I think a lot of people are kind of scared to talk about it or just don't have the language yet to talk about it. And and that's what I think um, I am very much interested in trying to generate because we, we do have to talk about that if we're going to get anywhere. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I feel like um, what what interests me is the stuff that can't be said you know not what like uh is being promoted or where the energy is but like where there's certain things happening that aren't the immediate focus right for example you know like i mean i think i think it's really really necessary and great that like all these platforms are so supportive of the protests but like look at it, what is happening um kind of like just randomly right now like uh like twitter 
deplatforming like the Chow Collective and um, moving, you know, like those were like basically the two biggest voices in countering the American prop, like anti-China propaganda. And that that if that happened before this, you know, when there was all this uh, anti-Asian racism and xenophobia actually being called out. Uh, on multiple platforms, it, you know, like when Trump was instigating that kind of anti-Asian racism, it would have been uh, not okay. Like some somebody would have been like, "Oh, like this is this is more anti-Asian racism." Because it would have been associated but, with Trump, right? I think exactly, yeah. exactly. So now, now Twitter is fine with uh, just cutting them off. Just like uh, cutting their throats, basically. And, you know, that is something that is like uh, subtle. That is not, it's like it's under the radar, right? It's like kind of when, uh, it kind of reminds me of when, and the, like not to the same level, obviously, but like, you know, like when the actual, like, you know, uh, original protesters from Ferguson were just gunned down one by one quietly like you know, well after, after the after, the media had yes, left well, ferguson mm-hmm, it all yeah, happened silent exactly. quietly yeah exactly like that's the kind of that's the kind of thing that you know like the liberal arm of american hegemony is very very good at doing and that is uh that uh, scares me a lot more than what is happening now. You know, with the I agree because they've brought Deray back, right? Now Deray has this campaign zero and talk yeah. about like watered down proposals. I remember like everyone was Fucking- joking because Biden said shoot him in the leg, and they were like, well, you know, it's Bi- it's a Biden gaffe. But Deray's campaign zero came out with a reform that said no more shooting at moving vehicles, meaning. The inference being that you have to you have to wait till the vehicle comes to a complete stop before you unload on it, and yeah, you have to warn somebody. I'm gonna shoot you before right. they shoot and, them. And, and, like, fuck and all that. of it had to do with shooting, whereas the 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 murder of George Floyd did involve a gun, right? And so, uh-huh. uh, and uh, so I don't know. There, there there definitely was like when you're saying that, I absolutely feel like yeah, there definitely is this move where it's like, um we'll do whatever it takes that in order to keep the, like we'll do reforms, meaning the people who have power now will retain the power, but it'll be subject to more regulations and oversight, but we are not going to change who has power. And I think that's why I have hope for this in that the message that's coming out now is defund the police. And I know people think that that may not be like such a revolutionary idea, but I think it is kind of an impossible request I don't think it's going to be easy to do that. And I think we're going to see like the power of the police to reject those notions. But I do think defunding the police is a major step that goes, that's not something that's going to be easily co-opted by uh, uh, Danny, this notion of maybe the octopus, you know, uh, with its many tentacles saying, uh, okay, let's do some half-assed reforms here to calm the people down so we can continue with our grand imperial project, you know, things like that. Um, I have hope. And I think that lessons were learned from Ferguson. I think that this is a resurrection of Ferguson with the understanding by a lot of people that uh, Ferguson ended in a way that was totally unsatisfactory, of course. Right. So whatever uh, 
the solutions that they threw at Ferguson, including a lot of corporate, like woke corporate media, Pepsi and, you know, whatever, this battle over the NFL. I think we've come to see since Ferguson how empty a lot of that stuff is. And now with that uh, corporate blackout day uh, where everyone, like including, you know, soda and candy manufacturers, uh, blacked out their website for one day, that there was that, that was, in my opinion, roundly rejected by the movement uh, people in the movement to say this is this is just bullshit. This is this is clearly trying to take the steam out of the you know the wind out of the sails. So I, I feel hopeful about that. I don't know if you agree, but um, yeah, maybe no, this time's different. Oh, I mean, I think that there is a struggle happening right now, and I think both of you are sort of really illuminating what that struggle is right there's the struggle um to really identify um the uh you know the the true enemies who you know who's operating in this movement sort of um illegitimately and how they're responding and um so i think that there is progress in that way um in terms of people recognizing those forces rejecting the corporations but there and there's also the real danger that um this is a movement in its infancy still that there were a lot of lessons learned from ferguson but those lessons um haven't necessarily taken a visible and organized form where um it can determine political outcomes and maybe just maybe this demand to defund the police is a big step in that direction and so it'll be critical to see how things turn out around that demand because yes as you said um, it is one that cannot really be met right and that is um, sort of the marker of how to build and sharpen and strengthen movements is to present demands and then figure out it's really not in the presentation of the demands or even in the fighting for the demands it's what happens when those demands are uh, rejected and they will be rejected because police unions have a lot of political power um, people are starting to recognize just how powerful they really are but a lot of black revolutionaries and people that have influenced the work of black agenda report have been saying for a long time um, that the reason why there's so many political prisoners in the United States and the reason why we even have a lot of the counterinsurgency measures and what we're seeing in the streets today is because police unions fight for those things. They fight to keep people behind bars. They fight to uh, repress movements. They organize and coordinate around it that police unions are not labor unions in the sense that they're fighting for the interests of workers they're unions that are fighting in the interests of the state and see the interests of the state as directly linked to their own existence and and their own benefit so yeah it, it is going to be a, a struggle i believe and and we will see all sides of this come out and um what i'm hoping is that there will be more of these kinds of conversations happening within these circles. And the more that these conversations happen, the more advanced the organization becomes in these movements. And also there will be a reckoning with a lot of these forces, especially 
um, forces that you know reside in some of these nonprofits that will end up emerging um, as as real leaders of these reform efforts, and then also with the Democratic Party that those forces will then have to contend with uh, the demands of the movement and we'll have to contend with these conversations as well. They won't have any answers because, um, you know, their own existence is predicated upon the maintenance of the system as well. So, you know, as, as much as Biden and the Democrats and all of their attendant institutions, um, as much as they try to are going to try to mobilize around this and try to get out um, and keep up with it, it's, it's likely not going to work. And that's the moment we live in, right? We live in this moment of stagnation decline for those in power. I mean, that is something that I have been very keen in, in paying atten- a lot of attention to because um, it really does show itself in moments like these. And I think it will continue to show itself as, um, you know, as people keep on the pressure, as they uh, maintain their anger, and as they continue to see that, um, you know, this system is not really organized to bring any sort of quote unquote justice. Um, and that it's really up to people themselves to define what that is. Um, yeah. At uh, okay. So, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Diana. Well, I think that um, I agree with all of that. And I feel like even if um, the reforms happen, we should be a little cynical about why, and how that will impact um, the future and kind of like global policy. Because I, you know, I think, Danny, you're actually very unique in the sense that you do see the um, connection with uh, domestic social justice work and international work, you know, international imperialism. Because I, I don't think that connection is made and i don't think most people understand that you know like i saw somebody saying like oh you know like like in response to a post about the u.s military being racist somebody was like actually in my experience the u.s military is one of the least racist organizations in the country and it's like um <laughs> really really like yeah. i i think i understand what they're saying you know like, i just I, a quick sorry. i just want to back up what you're saying there i saw i noticed someone uh saying um like this is a perfect example what you're saying like you know during th- w- when the police moved in for the first time in dc to push them back so so trump could uh walk to the church that was the first time that we really were starting to see like you know, media getting attacked, you know, international media reporters like getting uh, right. straight up attacked by these cops. And one of them was like, uh, this isn't a fucking third world country. You know, like that attitude, like, oh, this yeah. would be acceptable in a country that we invaded. But this is America. Like, you can't do this here. You can only do this over there. You know, and I think that's that's right. kind of the attitude that worries me as well. Right. And I think that kind of like uh, international understanding of racism uh, and imperialism is just kind of lost, even on like uh, the, the woke crowd, you know, it's like, yes, maybe it is true that, um, you know, brown and black and underrepresented uh, people are able to advance further in the military uh, in under like, you know, more egalitarian 
means than other organizations in the U.S., but they're still enacting like deeply, uh, fundamentally racist uh, policies. You know, like how is invading the brown? How is fucking bombing the brown world lost on you that that is racist? You know, and and this was a black person tweeting this too, and I'm just like, oh man, we have a long way to go. And I think what uh, what makes me a little cynical about you know even if defund reforms go through i i'm concerned that it'll only go through uh just enough to satisfy you know 60 percent of the the protesters and it will go through in such a way that defund police is not at all connected like the connection between defund police and defund the military is completely, completely abrogated. Yeah, I, I think that's why, uh, you know, I think that it needs to be a demand that just can't be met. Because if it can be met, then you just you can totally uh, you can you can totally tame the movement. But I, I don't think I'm not even sure defund the police is, is adequate for the anger of a lot of the uh, the people out there on the streets. I, I mean, they're, they're rallying behind this, but I think what they mean by it is actually more like of an, of an abolition type of call. And it's just, to me, it's really not possible just given how powerful and widespread the police are. I mean, even if you cut their budget, the cops are still there. Like they're, these people are still there. You know what I mean? Like they're not, right. you can't just disband the police and expect these people are just going to like disappear. And so, but, right. uh, you know, I want to bring, so we're at 50, I, I promised I wanted to bring this back to, because we're an Asian American podcast. And Diana, what you were saying there, uh, I think is a really great way in, because you said that you were fearful that people would would settle in a way, right? Like to take this moment and then settle for something. Yeah. And I think that this is the fear that I have for Asian Americans is that because we're largely liberals, and uh, and I don't mean that uh, I wish I, that we were conservatives, of course, or or Republicans, but that because we're liberal minded, that the the way that we think of this, and I've and I've seen this articulated on Twitter, is that we need to think is that this is an allyship with Black Americans that we need to quote recognize our privilege as the model minority, and understand that this is not about us. This is about black Americans, and we need to understand that we are sometimes uh, beneficiaries of the system that uh, you know puts their puts its knee on the neck of black Americans, and and we need to be respectful of that. And so we need to support from a distance, but we need to support this movement. We need to support Black Lives Matter. We need to throw up hashtags or whatever. And I think that the danger is exactly what you said: is if the movement gets co opted, if the movement gets um, taken over by a deray again, right? Which they're trying to do. That we, as sort of these liberals, will just follow that part of the herd. Like we will not maintain, uh, you know, our. We we don't have like a real uh, sense of communal interest in this. Like I don't even I don't even want to talk about personal interest, but I like we don't we don't have part of the. The, the concept of the communal interest in there where we have a sense of what's acceptable versus what's not acceptable. We'll just say, well, it seems like the right thing to do to be a good ally is to support, uh, you know, eight can't wait initiatives or something like that, or vote for Biden. And if we do that, then we'll be satisfied. And I think part of that is, uh, and, 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 uh, this is, this is really 
what interests me on you know as as part of this like whole Asian American discourse thing is 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 kind of find out why we always do this. And I just want to go back to Viet Thanh Nguyen, and I read I'd read his tweet earlier about that you know, about China being the sort of bo- bogeyman that justifies U.S. Uh, imperialism. And he wrote in this book called Race and Resistance, Literature and Politics in Asian American, in Asian America. He said that the concept of a dictatorial regime and its relationship to Asian Americans can be found not only in the context of American imperialism uh, and its support for overseas authoritarian regimes, uh, but that the United States and its domestic policies towards people of color can be conceived as a racial dictatorship. Uh, for a period that extends from the 18th century to 1964. But that in, and I'm sorry to paraphrase a little bit, in 1964, uh, the Civil Rights Act also ended legal discrimination of, of, uh, of you know, who was able to come into the country. And that Af- Asian Americans then started to be seen as the docile uh, model minority, which is a phrase that we see over and over and over again. We're the model minority. We have white adjacency. You know, we, and in times like this, we become guilty parties. We've got to confess our privilege. Uh, and he says, uh, unlike the stereotype of the yellow peril, which is resolutely negative and therefore, and this is the key phrase, easily rejected by those who are labeled with it. The stereotype of the model minority is regarded by Asian American intellectuals as insidiously precise insidious precisely because of its ability to be internalized by Asian Americans. So I think Diana, what he's saying is that yellow peril is like obsolete. It's like the old stereotype that we all recognize now and we've all thrown away. But what we have trouble with is model minority. Like we have this inability to understand how model minority is insidious. And so I think that's where liberals are at now. I think we've, as Asian Americans, I mean, that we understand model minority and we like talk about it a lot. We call it out. We recognize it in times like this. We will distance ourselves from the proceedings and say, I am part of the guilty party. I'm here to listen. I'm here to follow you. Uh, And so we take a very passive uh, approach, but I think we've actually come around again where it's actually the yellow peril that's actually hard, insidious, but hard to recognize, which is why I think, uh, you know, as we think that yellow peril is easy to identify and easy to call out, uh, the same person who wrote that passage is the same person who wrote that the the decline of the USA, uh, which is an imperial power, would be acceptable, but for the existence of China, which is just as bad, if not worse. And I think that is exactly the yeah. operation of yellow peril. That's totally right? yellow peril. That's exactly what he's right. doing. So what you're he to- just, yeah, you're totally right. yeah, so what he said is easily rejected is actually, and, and whereas model minority, model minority has been internalized. You know, I think by that tweet, it's the exact opposite. I mean, he has not internalized model right. minority, but instead has internalized the sense of yellow peril. And well, you know, he's uh, he's focusing on China. You know, he's Vietnamese. And so by focusing on China, he's not included in that yellow peril. So not only has he gone back to the yellow peril of, you know, like the first half of the 20th century, he's actively gone back to Chinese exclusion. 
that era of yellow. That's pill. true, though. I will say that um, you know, in in reading his book, The Sympathizer, that that is extended to the notion of a communist Vietnam, and I think that the yellow peril. Uh, the reason I think it might be a little bit hard to recognize and quote internalized is become is because it's a politicized type of racism. There is like the model, model minority. It makes room. I mean, it kind of they kind of work in tandem, in my opinion. But like, it makes room for the good for the good the good Asian American who has um, sort of an understanding that as bad as America is, there's this, he said, imperial and communistic tradition of the age of, of Asia itself. And he would include Vietnam in that, I think in the way he described communist Vietnam. Uh, and so I think there is a tendency, there still remains in us this um, sense of like both fear and guilt, fear of ourselves, as well as a bit of guilt, our, uh, uh, guilt in who we are. And I think that keeps us off of the front lines. Uh, so Danny, I think that's why I ultimate was really interested in, in, in talking to you. And maybe uh, I should have brought this up earlier. <laughs> we got, we really started talking a lot about um, sort of current events and stuff. But as an Asian American, I'm just wondering how it is that you came to not fear this notion that, uh, you know, maybe we Asians are, are worse or that Asia or China is worse or Vietnam is worse and that America, as bad as it may be, you know, this is our home and we need to have, you know, a, a real sense of faith that, you know, America is fundamentally a force for good. And I, I just, you know, I myself have struggled with how to uh, get around some of these notions to the extent that facts dictate that we do, you know. Um, so I don't know if you have much to, if you've mm. thought about that before, but I, I, as an Asian American was like, it's very rare to see someone, another Asian American speak like that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'm just teeing that up in terms of like how you came to see things this way. And cause I think that's kind of an important, uh, important point. Yeah. Yeah, no, um, uh, definitely. Well, you know, to kind of, uh, reference some of what Diana was saying too, I guess, you know, it really does relate to why I talk about the things I talk about, why I write what I write about, and why I focus on the things that I do in all of my uh, political activities. Um, It really does have to do with this uh, deep, I guess, uh, disdain that uh, that I really started to develop with liberalism. Um, and with this idea that, um, you know, allyship is enough. And, and I think it's part of the reason why I was able to develop that disdain for the really political, politically bankrupt character of liberalism is because I I grew up in a relatively uh, conservative mixed race working class family. Um, you know, I could kind of see just how partisan a lot of politics is, and especially even in the Asian American community. I mean, my mother definitely has roots in uh, the landed class prior to the revolution. And so her politics were very right wing and very pro colonial in so many ways, very subtly and psychologically, especially. And then my dad being a, you know, a New Deal liberal grew up under that tradition and just seeing how 
uh, that didn't really stop racism. I mean, he had his own very much deeply internalized racism um, as, you know, uh, a white American with German and Irish background. There's so many different things that you would say. He was in the military. He was drafted, fought in Vietnam himself, uh, was deployed there, um, you know, had some anti-war leanings. But at the same time, uh, it was pretty clear just from my upbringing that politics in uh, the way that people view the world is really shaped by their experience. And so as I was growing up, um, it wasn't until I got to college um, and really got to get out of the sort of urban uh, working class bubble that I was in um, where, you know, everything is about the American dream and uh, racism is just sort of a fact of life and you just kind of accept it, swallow it and uh, move on to trying to be successful under this order. Um, it sorry, can, you, can you mention again, sorry, can you just mention again quickly, like where you grew up? I, you, yeah. you told me before the benefit. of Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I grew up in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, technically usually seen as a very sort of bourgeois academic, uh, very small city, but I grew up closer to Boston. There are very, um, clear working class pockets in, in Cambridge. And I'm, uh, I'm from one of them. And so, you know, it has this sort of reputation as being a liberal bastion. They call it the people's, ironically, the people's Republic of Cambridge. Um, that's, it's sort of its reputation, but it, it goes through the same struggles as any other city. And so, you know, when I finally did end up getting into college, getting into some more of these white spaces, I, I began to put some things together that there was this entrenched inequality there was this entrenched um class dynamic and racism is a is a huge part of that and i think what ends up happening with questions about racism is is that they end up becoming disconnected from uh the very material basis for why racism exists right malcolm x said that you can't have racism without capitalism and vice versa that uh if we don't understand the international implications of racism and the economic uh, foundations for its international manifestations, then we can't really understand the domestic manifestations of racism. And so um, growing up in sort of a household that uh, was very conservative, but also had a lot of working class um, conditions that characterized it, and then kind of seeing how these liberal movements, as I started to get politically motivated and activated, I experienced racism myself as an Asian American, as so many Asian Americans do. And then seeing how, you know, uh, black people, um, you know, Latinos, et cetera, were, were being treated, trying to figure out as a teenager what that's all about is very hard. Uh, we don't have much uh, in front of us to give us an understanding of it. It wasn't until I got politically engaged. It wasn't until I tr I stood up for somebody, um, a friend in college who was being uh, racially, uh, quote unquote, profiled um, and being punished by the school for, you know, it's a long story, but being punished by the school for something that was completely outrageous, charged with a hate crime of all things. Uh, it wasn't until I stood up for him that I started to realize that this is really about not allyship, but it's about building camaraderie, that it's about understanding 
that we do have an interest, a vested state. Like the only reason I exist on U.S. shores is because the U.S. invaded Vietnam, right? And my mother would have never made that trip if it wasn't for the fact that the U.S. and imperial powers had invaded Vietnam. I had to learn all of these things without any guidance, right? It kind of had to happen through experience. And so when I see movements falling into this idea that, you know, um, that, that we shouldn't be comrades with people, that we shouldn't build real relationships and we shouldn't do our work that we need to do to, um, you know, to fight the, to fight injustice, to fight the, the core reasons and, and really the, the issue of power. If we don't put, you know, if, when I see people doing that, I, I mostly chalk it up to the fact that it's just more comfortable for those folks to, um, be on the sidelines and that while I am totally always, of course, going to, um, uphold self-determination and say, you know, black Americans, uh, need to be in the lead of their own movement. I'm certainly not going to be silent and not connect the dots with police brutality, mass incarceration, and the fact that the U S wages endless war abroad because the same core white supremacist ideology drives all of those things. And, um, solidarity is really the most powerful weapon against any form of injustice, but especially white supremacy. And that's shown through history. So I think my experience has led me to then study that history that kind of runs counter to, I think, the class prejudices, maybe the more the the sort of ways in which I think Asian American identity is formulated in the United States based around class premises, the idea of being sort of like a cog in this machine, being sort of a more privileged cog in this machine, rather than being a force that has a history actually of experience endemic racism. Um, but also the fact that, you know, I, and I hope that younger, especially younger Asian Americans will begin to understand kind of like younger Cuban Americans um, are beginning to understand that there was a big vested interest of the United States to create sort of a, you know, to create this brain drain, to create this uh, class of sort of privileged, quote unquote, immigrants from these countries that it was destroying and bombing um, and that there's really no uh, interest in holding on to that, right, beyond the fact of your own comfort. But um, I think that's the big challenge I th that a lot of folks have to come to grips with. For me, because I came out of the working class and I saw racism happen to, um, in real time all of the time, I think that helped my own political development. But it's going to be different for everyone. And, and it's moments like these where people start to ask the questions, what's my role in this? And I think it's it's a little problematic to just say my role is to be an ally and to just take direction. There's not always going to be direction out there. I mean, you know, when we're looking, when we yeah, participate in exactly. these protests, there's no, there's not a lot of direction beyond justice for George Floyd, justice for Black Americans being killed in the streets, and then uh, there's a lot of issues being raised. But there's not always a lot of direction. And where should we go? What's our role? And wh what should we do? It's not always just donate money here and there. We also need to figure out well, if. Black Americans are going to be leading their movement for self-determination. Maybe our role then is to try to hit the system at a different point, you know, and, and that then leads to a different conversation about what camaraderie is, what solidarity is, um, rather than um, kind of sitting on the sidelines and uh, feeling bad about yourself without realizing that that's mostly about comfort. And I've had to learn that 
too, because being who I am writing for Black Agenda Report, it's not like I haven't, you know, in the first iteration of the Black Lives Matter movement, I faced these questions as well from Black Lives Matter activists as well, you know, that, you know, who are you to speak about these things? What are you, you know, why are you doing that? Why, you know, there is going to be that debate that happens, but we, we have to be involved and engaged and um, show our commitment in any way we can and make the mistakes and have those conversations. I don't know why there's so many folks worried about making mistakes when there isn't really a model in the 21st century in this country around how to build this kind of movement. There are only lessons we can learn from history. I, I, I totally, I think that one of the things that liberalism has done is sort of like neutered our sense of moral, just morality. And so I think that's the, you know, liberalism, I think, cause is allows this notion that we can watch that video of George Floyd and think how terrible for black Americans. Like, oh, if if I were black, I could I could see myself really finding that troubling or really finding that disturbing or really finding that uh, injurious. But as an Asian American, uh... I derive somehow I derive (laughs) benefit from the system that caused that i think that's where liberalism is failing now is for you know right mm. I, I i read this thing uh that somebody um uh, this black woman wrote about how watching these videos of uh police uh brutality it doesn't actually serve anything except for to reinforce the racial barriers right so like when a when a white person watches that, it's not for a sense of justice. It's not to like, you know, don't look away. It's just reinforcing that they are not the, they are the police. They are not the victim. And I think for Asian Americans, when they do their little, you know, like privilege confessions or like uh, stand on their little soapbox going like allyship, check your anti, you know, anti-blackness. They're kind of doing that same thing. It's like reinforcing the notion that they are not the victim, you know, and um, like like this. It's definitely true domestically, but internationally, yes, we are. And I think that we need to just like fucking hammer it in that. Yes, we also fucking are. And that is the that's the foundation of solidarity. Solidarity. Well, well, and also, I think to the extent that we have really canonize the notion of model minority and that we are as Asian American liberals are willing to understand and accept critiques of the model minority start to see the ways in which the allyship model where we say that we have are deriving privileges from the system that produces the murders of, of people like George Floyd that what we're saying in effect is we need to reform the system and salvage it rather than overturn it. So we could never stand for something like abolish the police because we are proof, our, our quote, Asian privilege is proof that the system can work. It works for us. It just doesn't work for George Floyd's. So how do we fix that? And I think, I think that's a fundamentally conservative view that is intended to protect the police here to say, well, with Asians, they somehow can do it right. You see, Mm. Uh, with white people, they can do it right. Just somehow something went wrong and we have some racist cops and they, they don't really without, it doesn't go deep enough because again, we're staying there as the model minority confessing our quote privilege uh, to say, 
well, we don't have a problem with the cops. And so we're going to stand back and let you all sort it out while we sort of like blandly cheer on this notion that George Floyd was a, a betrayal of what the cops really are. You know, I think it's right. And I, I think there's um, uh, multiple reasons for that. I mean, uh, first of all, the Asian Americans that get the platform to uh, write these things like, you know, they are those like liberal shills. Right. Because like, you know, there's there are Asian Americans that are victimized by police brutality. Like one of my friends here, uh, her. um her cousin, uh, and I think this was like a decade ago, but he was just walking down the street uh, in the city and the police accosted him. They're like, you know, like, who are you? Like, we, we, we have a suspect that fits your description. Uh, they beat him up and then they put him in a lineup and he actually he didn't do anything. It's just they needed an extra Asian guy for the lineup. And so they just you mean like for another for like another crime? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Shit. Okay. Wow. Yeah, that's the only reason, and they fucking beat him, you know, just for just for existing at the right place at the right time. So it's not you know like the the people who get to write this shit, they are not the ones that are you know like facing police brutality. They're not the ones who are actually in solidarity with um you know, like, uh, black and brown people. Well, yeah, that's why we, like, we invited Danny to, to come on, because, like... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's too many and Asian-American I, writers we can't talk to <laughs> because of what you're saying. Yeah, and so, okay, like, there's a there's a history of silencing people like Danny in the U.S. You know, like, in the 50s, uh, when HUAC and the McCarthy, you know, like, uh, witch hunts were happening, the Chinatown, um, the heads of Chinatown, they were actively working with the FBI mm. to rat each other out as communists. So, you know, like, there has been, like, since then, uh, you know, and, like, they... You know, like even with the Japanese internment in World War II, there's just been in the the U.S. just like a continuing, um, uh, just like a fear fear mongering among Asian Americans to not um, not say the things that Danny is saying. You know that we we are trying to say. And also, like, another thing that is unique about um, Danny is he grew up uh, in a mixed neighborhood, right? Like, you you grew up with white people and Black and Latino and Asian people. And I think the kinds of people, the kinds of Asian Americans that are writing these op-ed bullshits, you know, they're the ones who have always lived in white areas like there's this uh professor uh, of sociology at yale who's done extensive research on this phenomena and she found that like the the people that you grow up with as a kid they kind of inform the kind of relationships that you have so like 90 percent of white people only have white mm. friends you know and and white relationships and like that that sort of uh like institutional racism runs so deep like you even like 40 80 years after the fact like that just that is just who you feel comfortable with that's just how you are and like it is hard to change those like deep 
kinds of programming, right? Which is why like redlining and, um, you know, like uh, kind of like housing discrimination is so is so so detrimental because you just like are forced even it doesn't matter even what politics you have like the fact is if you grow up in an all-white neighborhood you're only gonna have white friends yeah you're saying like if it it starts out that way it's much harder to to subvert that later uh, exactly yeah. like mm-hmm. friends and relationships so it's just like you you just like become entrenched in this whiteness and like you know like danny i also like when i was a kid i was in a super mixed environment and now like you know most of my friend groups are mixed like uh you know like relationship wise like it's not super white but like hmm. if you're an asian person who grew up who like your parents put you in this all white background like that is just how you will turn out and like you basically have next to zero uh control over that and it's sad and it's like really fucked up but that that's just Hmm. how like the psychology works Hmm. you know i want to be in this i want to be i want to include myself in this club mm -hmm. because i grew up too i think pretty in a pretty like like truly diverse uh area suburb of dc a mix of of professional class and working class and yeah diana i think that's true uh it, it really and now being in queens and stuff where it's like ultra diverse uh i i, I guess i you're right i i find myself to be most comfortable around like uh the opposite of monocultures, regardless of what mm-hmm. m- culture it is. It's not just white, but I, I really feel comfortable with like a real mix of pl- uh, pluralism is kind of how I yeah. would say I grew up in. Yeah. yeah. Me too. Mm. Me too. But I mean, it's just like the confluence of all these different factors, you know, and it's like it's hard to s- just like pin it on, you know, like class or uh, politics or even uh, migration patterns. It's just it's all of these things and it's all fucked and uh, it's just so difficult to change but like you know that's what we have to do that we got to try yeah no i mean everything that you all are saying is so true um i i think that there is a real big opportunity here and i think one of the reasons why especially after traveling there why i talk so much about china is because i do see the u.s's decline just as a global power in all sorts of ways in the reasons for its decline, you know, it's economic, just uh, depravity that it is uh, just showing it cannot offer anything to just so many uh, people right now. And I think that's going and now we're seeing how anti-China sentiment is even affecting those folks who have come here from China to study and to, you know, kind of build that middle class, so-called middle class lifestyle, that it's starting to affect them. And and that there is this opportunity in China's rise to begin to challenge these issues um, head on. Like, I do think that regardless of the xenophobia, regardless of how hostile the United States becomes towards China, that there is going to be a reckoning among people who are becoming especially disturbed by things like police brutality, uh, police murder of black Americans, by things like, um, you know, the economic just uh, downfall of working people and a lot of the so-called middle class as well, that 
just the shrinkage of opportunities of, um, you know, just any sort of benefit coming from the system, unless you're able to, uh, you know, accumulate, uh, you know, millions and millions of dollars off the backs of labor, you know, unless you're in that situation, the rise of China offers an opportunity that I think people are going to have to reckon with in some way, shape or form, if it has to come first with making the perilous mistake of falling into xenophobia, so be it. But at the end of the day, China's rise is offering this opportunity to see what a country that's non-white, that's 20% of the world's population, um, what that country is doing to sort of address these pressing problems, right? And, And when I was there, that's one of the things that I saw big time. And one of the ironic things I always say now to folks is like, you know, a lot of these progressives, they like the things like the Green New Deal, they want a living wage, they want all these things. And then they hate China, despite the fact that China's like building towards that, <laughs> like they're building towards living wages, wages are going up and up and up. Every single year, they're built like if you look at China's policy around the environment, that's the definition of the Green New Deal. However flawed it may be, whatever you want to say about it, it is the definition of that building your economy around green energy and renewable energy. That's what's happening. So there's all these hot points and flashpoints. And then you have the issue of racism, which is now becoming so central towards any conversation about China. And now any conversation in the United States is going to begin there for the foreseeable future because of this mass movement that's emerged. So we have these opportunities, I think, in liberalism, the allyship, the sort of astroturf um, neoliberal consensus that exists here in the U.S. and that the elite tries to use to co-op movements, etc., uh, their purpose and their visibility, I think, will become sharper and sharper and, and and will have to be reckoned with as well, because it's that which sits in the way of us moving forward. It's not the white man's party, the Republican Party, Donald Trump. We, for the most part, as anyone who considers themselves progressive or, or having any sort of conscience or social justice, understands where Trump and the GOP and all of them stand. But it's really when we get to the totality of the arrangement here that we have to reckon with the Democrats. We have to reckon with who we call in Black Agenda Report the black misleadership class or any misleadership class of any uh, so-called racial or ethnic group. Right. We have to reckon with these folks in order to move forward. They're actually the first line of defense. And, um, you know, should they be victorious in establishing or reestablishing hegemony in U.S. politics over Trump or who, you know, the GOP, et cetera, then they will inevitably uh, reproduce the same agenda that we've been seeing over the course of decades and decades and decades and decades, which includes xenophobia and, um, you know, saber rattling with China. There's all, that's always going to exist, as you said. Twitter, which claims itself to be, you know, uh, against what Trump stands for, also got rid of the Chow Collective. Um, you know, that just speaks to what this system just dominated by this very small uh, corporate arrangement is all about. It's all it's all about suppressing exactly as that people like us, people like me, people like who write for Black Agenda Report, um, revolutionary history movements 
Um, that's what it's designed to do. And uh, we are coming into, I think, a stage of struggle right now where we can begin to have these conversations, right? When we when this doesn't exist, we're kind of, um, you know, throwing critique and analysis um, to, you know, the unwashed masses and hoping that it sticks, right? But when there is mass movement in the streets, that's when these conversations, people are really in search for that alternative. And hopefully we can um, be part of building that. But I think, yeah, as you said, it will definitely have to contend with just the uh, the facts of the system that there are so many forces at play in any individual's lives, especially if, as Asian Americans navigating a political economy like this, um, navigating that history and then navigating the changes, the rapid changes that are occurring, right? We wouldn't be having this conversation last year, right, around um, China, et cetera, um, at least not perhaps to the same extent, but because the pandemic exposed the U.S. in the way that it did, China became the number one target of the U.S. imperial propaganda machine. And that then was so successful in building up this anti-Asian sentiment, anti-China sentiment. And now we're in a situation where it's almost the inverse, right? We have so many people who are opposed and majorities opposed to racism by the police. So now the job is, well, where's the disconnect, right? Where's the disconnect between those folks who really truly believe that police need to be held accountable, that perhaps police need to be abolished, right? This huge um, undertaking that's going to take real revolutionary um, uh, a struggle and then feelings towards China, feelings towards just people all over the world who are just building systems that the United States doesn't like. Where's the disconnect between those two um, phenom- like phenomena? Why, why is it, why does it exist, I guess, is the big question. That that's a that's a huge question. I, I agree with you. That is the a huge question. I think there are answers. Um, and uh, where I don't know. I think that's probably like another podcast. But you you should. I don't know if you're. You, you should come back some. You know soon. Uh, and we yeah, can, we can tee to. that up because <laughs> we could spend another this. hour twenty seven at least just uh, doing the outlines of of the question you just asked. Yeah, for sure. I'll definitely be back. <laughs> All right. Uh, Diana, any closing thoughts? Um, I, I feel like this is a really heartening conversation. You know, like, uh, like there's hope for the future. And I think uh, I want to say the future is China. Like, I, I want to see how China develops and handles a lot of the issues that basically the U.S. has completely failed at, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll just because you mentioned Chow, both, both of you mentioned Chow Collective, which uh, for listeners is uh, I don't know much about them. I followed I followed them on Twitter, but they were a group that sort of tried to uh, dispel a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the, the propaganda and stereotypes about China being an evil country. Uh, but they were banned from Twitter. And when that happened, it, it just made me think. Uh, that you know what's going on at some level is that America is becoming uh, the China that it imagines, uh, 
uh, that the reality of China is not as important as our conception of China because um, as we focus on this image of an evil and antagonistic foe, uh, that that actually is emboldening us to become that image. And so I thought that 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 now this push towards censorship on the on the on the internet, there was a there was a uh, famous article uh, recently by Jack Goldsmith, the Harvard Law School professor on the Atlantic, suggesting that China justifies uh, the the hitherto uh, unthinkable notion that the U.S. needs to regulate speech uh, on the internet. And so I think that's a big danger. That's the approach that I take in terms of why it is important to dispel these myths, not simply for China's benefit, uh, because as you can see, China's really not suffering for it much right now, uh, but for our benefit, because um, we're just creating an imaginary target for ourselves to become. And that is going to be a very, very uh, disturbing thing. And it's going to happen very quickly. Uh, and we're going to suffer for it, not not the Chinese. So, um, Yeah. Uh, yeah, Danny, thanks so much, man. That was, it's, uh, it was really great talking to you. I really enjoyed, you know, your appearances on, on other shows and podcasts. So really honored to, to have you on, man. Yeah, no, for sure. Thank you. And I, I look forward to being back in the future. Thanks. Thanks.